Welcome to World Footprints Radio, the show where we celebrate responsible travel, culture, and heritage. Featuring your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Now, World Footprints Radio. Well, hi, everybody. Thank you for joining us today on World Footprints Radio. It's a great day to travel and leave positive footprints, especially to the destination we're taking you to today. We're your host, Tanya Nian Fitzpatrick, and if you're joining us for the first time, thank you so much and welcome to our world of socially conscious and responsible travel and lifestyle. Today's World Footprints visits Hever, Malta, and Glasgow. No, we're not going to Europe, but to Montana, USA, for the final leg of our Montana journey. In addition to those places, we'll take in Fort Peck and Fort Benton, the birthplace of Montana. You'll find these towns in Montana's Russell Country and Missouri River Country, and we're going there today to take in everything from dinosaur digging in Malta to fisheries in Fort Peck and a lot of local history in between. First up is Russell Country and the town of Haver, where we will tour the 2,000-year-old Wukpachugan Buffalo Jump, North America's best-preserved buffalo jump. From here, we will stop in Fort Benton, the birthplace of Montana, to visit Old Fort Benton, the fur trading post established on the Upper Missouri River in 1846 to trade with the Blackfoot Nation. From Fort Benton, we will stay on the Missouri River to the heart of Montana's Missouri River country to Fort Peck, where we will visit the Fort Peck Fish Hatchery and learn about conservation efforts at the Fort Peck Reservoir. Then it's a short trip up to Glasgow to take a peek at the collection of the Valley County Museum. Finally, it's westward to Malta as we follow the course of the Milk River, where we will go digging for dinosaurs at the Great Plains Dinosaur Museum and Field Station and visit the Phillips County Museum as we wrap up our Montana journey. We welcome your comments at any time about anything we're doing. Email us at comments at worldfootprints.com. Golly, we're packing in a lot of uh, a lot of traveling today, and I hope we can squeeze it all in. <laughs> I got tired listening to you and all the stops we we went. It's amazing that we made it through that trip uh, with our you know with no sleep uh, deprivation. And hey, guys, if you uh, want to follow us in real time on our travels, sign up for our social networks and please sign up for our newsletter from our website at worldfootprints.com. Now, sit back and relax and take in the big sky country of this leg of our Montana journey. Montana's Russell Country honors noted cowboy artist Charlie Russell, and we'll take you here today to explore Native American life and Montana's origins. Our first stop takes us to Walk Pachugan. Buffalo Jump and Haver. This 2,000-year-old bison jump is the best-preserved bison jump in North America, and our guide, John Park, tells us how the adventures of a 14-year-old named John Brumley, now an archaeologist, led to the discovery of Walk Pachugan. North south uh, to the Missouri River, it's about 70 miles, 60, 70 miles, and that's a big river. So they named this Walk Pachugan, means little river. And this site is... Uh, 2,000 years old, the oldest, and it goes up to about 600 years ago, six, seven, 700 years. John Brumley uh, found this site when he was 14. He was hunting rabbits down along the road with uh, the railroad tracks, and he come up over the hill right down in there, and he started seeing a bunch of blood, and he started looking around, and he started picking up little arrowheads. And... <clears throat> At that time, he was only 14. Yeah, that, that was in 1960. 
And at that time, at the university, there was an uh, anthropologist. And so he went over and seen him and talked to him and told him what he found. So the man come over and he looked at it and he said, yes, we have a real good site here. So then it took off from there and he started doing some explorations. Rock Pachugan is part of the H. Earl Clack Museum in Haver and is nestled on the banks of the Milk River, one of the many historic rivers in the region. Lewis and Clark named this when they come through. Uh, they weren't up this far up the Milk River, but where it flows into the Missouri down at Glasgow, about 100 and, I don't know, what is it, 160 miles away. And the reason they called it the Milk River because it was milky from all the sediment that come out of the Badlands and everything. So that's how they named that. A buffalo jump is how Native Americans killed buffalo for food and for trade. And medicine men, or shamans, led these massive buffalo kills, as John Park shows us in the rock engravings at Wapachugan. Normally on a buffalo jump, that's where you'll find the petroglyph. And the shaman, or the medicine man, he was the boss of the of the kill. He directed everything. And what they would do is, that if you look right here, you look real close, just follow my finger. There's an outline right there that's been pecked in, and then they left this ridge right in here. Mm-hmm. That's a buffalo. He would peck that in, and that would show the buffalo symbolically which way to run. And they moved it down here to keep it from being stolen or vandalized you know, from up on top. Bison were coaxed into jumping to their deaths, as John explains. What we have right here, <coughs> it's a cur- uh, the buffalo jumps, not all of them, but a lot of them, uh, the natives would build a fence. And <coughs> in this first hut, I'll show you, there's still a post hole that has wood in it. And, and they build them just like this. And what they do is they put a post in the ground, they put buffalo skulls at, at the base to prop it up, and then they'd line it with brush. And it's not on there now, we took it off, but they would lay buffalo hides over the top of that so the buffalo couldn't see daylight. It's just like cows. If cows see daylight, they make a, a run for it. And what they did was that they started their fence over here, corral, and they went around about the end of the world. That walkway is the wooden walkway right there. And what that did, the ones that weren't killed coming off to jump, if they were wounded, broken leg or something like that, then that prevented them from escaping. And also uh, the river helped a little sure, bit. A little bit of a yeah. So they would just stand behind that and just smash the ones that were wounded. And there's evidence of that post. Rock Pachugan has the best preserved bone layers to be found anywhere, going back as far as 2,000 years, and some as recently as 600 years old. That's the 2,000-year-old bone layer, and that's called Basant. It's a a type name that archaeologists use for that uh, period of time. So that's 2,000 years old. You come up that bone layer right there, where my light is, it comes across, it's pretty thin, it's not deep and thick like the lower one. That's Avon Lee, and that, they used that uh, about 1,300 years ago, and that was Avon Lee, and they used it just for a very brief period of time. It's just a real thin layer. And then when you get up on top, you can see a couple more bone layers in there. That's called Saddle Butte, and that's about 600 years old. 700 years old and you can see the burnt the burnt areas up on top 
What they would do is uh, they would purposely burn it. At least those people did. Passant Avon Lee did it down below. But that got rid of the uh, the rank smell and the flies and all the rest of it goes, you know, that goes with that inside a kill area. And this site is unique. A buffalo jump, normally a buffalo jump was used as a communal kill and it was done in the fall. And the reason they did that, <coughs> they were nomadic, just little family groups. They would come together in the fall, uh, the different family groups, and have a communal kill for hilltop up there and then the jump. And then down below you can see the corral that's built around it. What they would do is up on top, the grazing area and that's where the buffalo would be grazing and they would haze them towards the lip of the, the jump real slow and when they got close to it they'd stampede them over. The ones in front couldn't stop, they couldn't see what was happening until they were right on the jump and the ones behind it were running with them and it, it you know just pushed them over. Unlike most of the buffalo jumps that were seasonal, Walk Pachugan operated year-round which explains the sheer volume of fossils found in the site. And this buffalo jump is unique uh, in a couple of ways. The first is they used it for the all four seasons. They used it fall, winter, spring and summer. Normally you would buy some kills uh, in the spring, late spring, and early fall. But this one they used it. And this is the oldest uh, buffalo job in North America where it's been excavated where you can come in and you can actually see the bone layers. The rest of the buffalo jumps, they have like a kiosk and you stand up and the, the tour guide says that's the that's kill area, yeah. that's where they process the food. Yeah. Oh, Although the Walk Pachugan is associated with the Blackfoot Confederacy, many Native Americans and First Nations have staked a claim to Walk Pachugan, as John explains. The Blackfeet <coughs> claim this jump is their own. That was their people. If you go to Fort Belknap, 40 miles away, the Grovon claim this is their buffalo jump. If you go to Glasgow, the Sioux and the Cinnaboyne claim it. If you went to Wyoming, the Shoshone would claim it, so it's kind of a... From Haber, a trip down Highway 87 takes us to Fort Benton, the birthplace of Montana. This town on the Upper Missouri River has a number of attractions, such as the Grand Union Hotel, home to one of Montana's finest restaurants, the Union Grill, and Old Fort Benton, established by the American Fur Company in 1846. Shirley Smith of Old Fort Benton tells us about the history behind the walls of Old Fort Benton, which has been reconstructed. Let's go inside for a tour. This, this is a reconstruction of the original fort. Building it way down there, the tall building, the blockhouse, is the original blockhouse from 1846. Um, civilization out here in the West. Well, in the 1840s and the 1850s, there was, there was only one place between those mountains and where the border is now. And that was right here, this little fort. Fort Benton. Uh-huh. Mm -hmm. So you, you covered some big country. What we did is we decided, you know, small rural town, kind of dying like all the small rural towns are, that besides the fact that we all loved the history of that time, um, we really thought a reconstructed fort would be of 
good economic benefit for this community. Because it was gradually moving into tourism. As farming, um, the number of farm families goes down, that kind of stuff just was hurting us badly. So that's what we... Why don't you get a buffalo <laughs> roll? She's wearing the wolf. So uh, we started uh, 11 years ago to reconstruct this, and our, and our first steps were to dig, do archaeological excavations of these foundations for these buildings on this side. Mm -hmm. And then uh, our plan was um, we would just put down some cement pads to show where the fort used to be. Mm -hmm. But I got lucky and got us a couple grants, and away we went, and we built these two buildings and started to reconstruct and then we did a dig and did the blacksmith carpenter shop down there and we were going to do the same thing there but every time we just were about ready to say okay let's just pour the cement pad we'd get a grant and we'd start building so the, the original fort was a log fort just like you see in the cowboy movies mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. just like that it was on a um, bottom five miles upriver over on the other side and the problem that happened with them was that this fort traded primarily with the Blackfoot Confederacy. Mm -hmm. And they all winter on this side of the river, on the Teton and the Marias. And they couldn't get across the river to trade during prime trade time. So they actually came to the Bushway up there and said, why don't you move down to this place, which is right where there was a, an old, old crossing go over into the buffalo country and so that's we did they came down here in the fall of 46 and dug foundations mm -hmm. Gail go get get some of those no get take some of those coats <laughs> but you can say you were a wolf now <laughs> yes I knew you were going to ask <laughs> so that's no that's fine so um they, they dug the foundations in the, the fall of 46, and in the spring of 47, they tore down that log fort Again? Mm -hmm. and actually floated it down in pieces. And so Do it was like the pre, first prefabricated building in Montana because mm -hmm. they just brought it down here, stuck it in into the foundations, and in a matter of a month and a half, we're open for trading again. Mm -hmm. Now, this, this fort, it... You you keep mentioning trade. Was this primarily fort trade and not a defensive? That's right. Fort? It was never a military fort. But the American Fur Company, who was the parent organization, so that would be the Astors. Mm -hmm. um, John Jacob Astor, yes, in New York. Yes, and he sold the business to Pierre Choteau in mm -hmm. St. Louis. Oh, yes. The Choteau family, we yeah. the founders of St. Louis. Yeah, oh, wow. that's what this is. Choteau County. Yeah, I saw the sign. Yeah, uh -huh. that, that's yeah, and that's why you hear me throwing little French kind of Americanized French things out, because uh, most of the men that were here worked for Pierre Choteau and Company, okay. and were of French descent, probably French Canadian, but still. <laughs> so we had bourgeois instead of chief traders and, and everything gets Americanized out here so it was Bushway mm -hmm. but it was always the same and, and many many of the men who worked here had French names um, so this was always just a trading fort 
and specifically placed here to trade with the Blackfoot Confederacy. After the break, we'll explore Missouri River Country's Fort Peck as we stop at the fish hatchery. Um, we have 50 of these tanks in here, and this is what we use for rearing the fish once they've hatched. We have three different types of water that come into the hatchery. We can have raw water, cold water, treated water, and heated treated water. And then we'll take you to Glasgow's Valley County Museum for a local history lesson. Next on World Footprints Radio. Hi, I'm Tia from Montana, and I love World Footprints Radio. Whether you play, manage, or support a team, the iTeam iPhone app is for you. The iTeam app is user-friendly and offers the same interactive experience as any Apple mobile app, including contacts, iPod, SMS, and email. With the iTeam iPhone app, you can keep records and track fixtures of all your teams in any sport, including cricket and rugby. You can also enter details of opposing teams, including ground and contact name, and compile a history of players and their statistics. You can find us on iTunes and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at iTeam iPhone app. My name's Paul from Billings, Montana, and I'm on a spiritual sojourn here, and I've managed to meet some pretty inspiring people. I'm Ian and Tanya at World Footprints, and I hope you guys can get out of them what I did. Thanks. And now, more of World Footprints Radio with your hosts, Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back. I'm Tanya Fitzpatrick. As we make our way from Fort Benton, the Missouri River leads us to the town that once housed 50,000 people, Fort Peck. People came here to work in the 1930s to escape the ravages of the Great Depression to work on the construction of Fort Peck Lake and Dam for the U.S. Corps of Engineers. Fort Peck is a major attraction in Missouri River country. One of those attractions is the Fort Peck Fish Hatchery, which produces walleye for the picturesque Fort Peck Lake and salmon trout and other fish for lakes, rivers, and streams throughout the state of Montana. B.J. Erickson of the Fort Peck Hatchery tells us about the fish that come from it. We have our salmonids, which is your trout species, salmon species. Any of these top four fish here you won't, you'll never see in this side of the state. They're extreme cold water, cold stream dwelling type fish. We do have rainbow trout here, and we do have rainbow trout on station. So we'll be able to, we have some back here about two inches long right now that we'll be able to look at. Uh, lake trout, the only place you find them in the state of Montana is in Flathead Lake or Fort Peck Reservoir. They can grow 30, 35 pounds and live probably 30 to 35 years even. Uh, next one down is a Cisco. That is our main forage fish in Fort Peck Reservoir. They were introduced into Fort Peck as a forage fish. The biggest reason is they eat bugs and plants and stuff. They don't compete with the other fish for the forage for the other smaller forage fish. Um, the bottom guy here, Chinook salmon. We just finished our salmon spawn uh, Monday, as a matter of fact, and uh, we have about 600,000 eggs on station right now. But we, when Mother Nature quits bringing us the fish, we quit taking them. And th this fish here only lives to be four or five years old and will grow upwards of that 30 pounds in that four to five years. They live ba basically spend all their time on the bottom of the reservoir. That was why they were introduced in here to try to utilize some of the deeper mm -hmm. water, colder air water in, in Fort Peck. Kind of a little joke over in this one here. Uh, when the walleye first came on station, or the hatchery, excuse me, 
they were saying we were going to raise, we were going <coughs> to agree walleyes with trout type stuff and get <laughs> as well as genetically and physically impossible. Mm-hmm. So a local taxidermist painted that up, <laughs> and it's called a wall out. <laughs> <coughs> Excuse me. And Rob, uh, one of the major things, our, I should say, our our biggest uh, production fish in, in this hatchery is walleye. And we have every spring we have a, a, a volunteer program. We have 100 to 120 uh, volunteers that will actually come and help us with this spawn. And if it wasn't for the walleye spawn volunteers, we probably wouldn't get the program done. It's just they are that important to this operation. We take in about uh, 120 to 130 million eggs a year. And out of that, we try to produce about 40,000, 50,000 fry and fingerlings. How this program works, <coughs> all of the, the walleye stuff is done on the big dry arm in the Ford Peck Reservoir down south there. And what we do is we take those two pontoons out, we set them up on a shoreline where we have enough of a structure and deep enough water, because we need about 8 to 10 feet for our holding pens. Then they'll set up these, it's, that one's called a Merwin trap. It has a 100 foot lead, 8 feet deep. And what you do is we tie that to shore, and then we float that out that 100 feet. And what, when a fish is looking for spawning grounds, they, serve, they cruise the shoreline. They'll hit our lead, and they swim into this pen. In picture five there, you see there's a little square hole. They'll swim into that, and then they can't figure out how to get back out. The process for hatching fish is pretty interesting from the various tanks and water types needed to raise them, as BJ explains. Um, we have 50 of these tanks in here, and this is what we use for rearing the fish once they've hatched. We have three different types of water that come into the hatchery. We can have raw water, cold water, treated water, and heated treated water. The raw water will never be used in the hatchery, just because we don't, it, it'd be an absolute emergency before we'd ever use the raw water. The cold water, which I'll tell a bit later, is generally we use year-round. 50 degrees is the optimum temperature for raising fish. Once it gets below 50, we need to start the boilers. We're right, which will start probably Tuesday. They're just, they're right on that border. And then this one here, I'll go through the system, I'll show you up here. And then it's what we call heated treated water. Everything in the hatchery is on a computer program. So, the little board will walk down here and it's got red lights and green lights. Just one of our systems up top, we have two UV systems. Well, we'd have to shut one one down and then go through the other one. So and right now we have an alarm on our deal. I have a quick question for sure. you. The, um, what's the hatchery's primary mission? Is it one of conservation or one of reproduction Re- for a table? You know, yeah, okay. Our, our, walleye, our, our walleye production is basically to replenish Fort Peck Reservoir. And we have like 68 or 69 other ponds in, in the state of Montana mm-hmm. that we can stock. And that's what the that's what our walleye program is to keep us going. Like I say, you know, twenty percent, at least eighty percent of the fish that go into Fort Peck are out of this hatchery. So if we didn't put walleye in Fort Peck, it would probably be a very not a very good fishery. Um, the trout program, on the other hand, has some fish that are for reproduction, and some are put and take. We raise them to what we call a catchable. So they come out of here nine inches long. They go right into a little kid's pond or a pond, so they can be caught. And the reason we do that with a trout, um, in about seven to eight months, we can make a nine-inch trout. 
in order to make a 9 inch walleye, you're looking at two and a half to three years. So our put and take fish are the trout. Yeah. Same thing with the salmon. There, there is no natural reproduction of the salmon, mm-hmm. Chinook salmon in Fort Peck. Everything is done by us. To stock Fort Peck Lake with thousands of walleye, the fish have to be spawned from hundreds of thousands of eggs, which are rolled in a pretty intricate process. Um, walleye, northern pike, perch, those types of fish, their eggs have to be rolled. So what we do is have this little jewel here called a rocket. And if you look at there's valves off every one of those onto every one of those tubes. The water does, it comes down through the bottom and flows up, creating just that little roll effect. Moves them enough to where we can keep them from fungusing up real bad. Uh, these guys take about 18 days to hatch at 50 degrees. So 18 to 21, 22 days generally what it takes. And every fish, once it hatches, has to come up and take a breath of air to inflate their air, back, their air sac. Well, when a walleye, when he hatches, he gets up, goes up, and takes his breath of air, swims out the end of this little spout, into the trough, and then into the tank. We call that swim up. Okay, the northern pike, same process, the eggs roll, they come up, take a breath of air, they go, they go lay on the bottom. Then we watch to see if everything's all, once they've all hatched out, and they physically got to take this jug and pour the fish into the tank. Um, northern pike, when they're born, have a little sticky thing on the end of their nose to adhere to, you know, vegetation and stuff in the wild. And what we do is we hang burlap, strips of burlap in the tank, and they'll, all, they'll adhere to it, and all of a sudden you come up one day and three-fourths of them are laying on the bottom. Well, we know it's time for them to go. They, everything is it's based on their stomach, their digestive system in that, how long it takes to develop. These are about four to five days. Once they're, once they're in this tank four to five days, they got to go out to a reservoir or, or ponds. <coughs> they're at a quarter inch. Yeah, yep, at a quarter inch. Yeah. And we can put about 400,000 eggs in this jar. We have 320 of these jars on the station, so we can handle 120 plus million eggs just in this hatching battery right here. And when I, when you see it was measured out, what we do, we know how much, how many ounces, how many eggs are in an ounce. So we'll put three quarts of eggs in this jar. And that'll be, that's for that, around that 390 to 400,000 eggs is what we put in the jar. Tours from the public or, yeah. it is? Yeah, okay. yeah. What we do is we just recommend, require that they call in and make arrangements. Yeah, we give probably 25, 30 school tours all in the end of, you know, in spring before everybody gets out of class. Uh, we have two classes from Malta that come up every year and help us with the salmon spawn. You know, yeah, that's, yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, we, it's open to the public anytime. That, yeah. So, well, I think that's kind of it in a nutshell. Oh, I made my about 20 miles from Fort Peck is the town of Glasgow, with half of the population of Valley County. Glasgow sits on the banks of the Milk River, which explorers Lewis and Clark named in 1805 as they passed through the area. With over 7,000 residents in Valley County, it might surprise you to learn that Valley County has eight times more livestock than it does people. We stopped by the Valley County Museum to meet some of the good people and hear their stories, as Barbara Hoffman tells us about the town and the county and how they both came together to create the Valley County Museum. Now, how long has the museum been here? Since 1970. It was built in 1970. 
and was started by a group of extension homemakers who wanted to preserve the history of the area. And then from there, a historical society was developed, and it just kind of grew. Mm-hmm. All volunteers and volunteer money and <laughs> everything at that point. So it's quite a remarkable uh, museum. Is there one period, um, Barbara, that's dis- uh, displayed here that actually really defines Glasgow and the development of Glasgow? Is it? I would say it's that, that east uh, that's southern uh, corridor right along there. There is the beginning, and so you'll see a lot of the, of the things that's really got going at that point. And what does the southern corridor? That's tell? that's all the homesteaders and the, and the development of um, you know, the railroad, the cattle drives, that sort of thing. The museum features rare artifacts from the area's Assiniboine people, including a rare elk hide teepee, one of only three known to exist, as well as porcupine and glass beads used in trading. One of the biggest attractions is this Native American one right here. And, and that, um, like I say, that teepee is one of only three in the world. Uh, it's made from 37 elk hides, hmm. not buffalo, but elk. Um, all the garments that are displayed over here and the beading and so forth uh, are is quite exquisite. There are everything from porcupine beads to the beginning of the glass beads. Um, there's some pottery in this case right here. One way the museum chooses to tell a history of the region is through a series of panoramas, as Barbara explains. Beautiful panoramas. They were done by a local artist, Georgia mm-hmm. Monford. Um, beautiful sculpting that she did. Then we go over to the Lewis and Clark uh, coming into this area, mm-hmm. the confluence of the, the Milk River and the Missouri River, and you can see the change of color there as it got its name. This is old Fort Peck. Mm-hmm. Um, many people are surprised to see that they're was a fort actually at Fort Peck and it, and then when the dam was built the entire area was flooded so that of course is no longer there but then we can see what the uh, buffalo what happened with the buffalo the massacres of the buffalo this type of rawhide over here is done for the cowboys sit around in the winter don't have enough uh, to keep them busy and so that um, is some of their artwork and the cowboys and the uh, if that isn't a hard work in kitchen I don't <laughs> know <laughs> yeah nice chuck wagon here yes, and this is the uh, the end bar end display the end bar end was a huge cattle drive from Texas up to Canada and this happened to be some of the artifacts that the great-grandson of the Niedringhaus family gave us for for our display. And here's another panorama done by Mrs. Motford of the homesteaders and all the little creatures in the the yard right down to the little baby chicks in the (laughs) coop. And then the railroad display of some of the artifacts that have uh, been collected as part of 
the paraphernalia that the railroads use. Now, you mentioned that Glasgow exists because of the railroad. Talk to us Pretty about uh, about uh, the railroad and how it helped to shape this place. Uh, uh, well, this was, you know, part of the big move for homesteaders to come to this area. They come by train. And uh, so that was really the big calling. And then to get the railroad to go from here to the east to the west coast. So this was one of the, the stopping places and this panorama in the back sort of shows the very first development. Everything was tent and log buildings and more saloons than anything else. Hmm. <laughs> now, Glasgow's claim, claim to fame, uh, clearly in terms of you know, people coming here to uh, do ranching, to do agriculture. What about the industries uh, past uh, that helped to uh, put this place on the map? Talk to us about about some of the things that kept people employed here and able to raise their families here. Well, definitely, definitely the the wheat and the cattle, that and and horses at one point as well. Um, then as the town developed uh, we needed to have the doctors hospital came into existence the schools and various businesses I would say that that's pretty much it and it was a hub for eastern Montana at that point How large is the town in terms of people? Uh, we're about uh, 3,300 right now at one point it was Oh, over 10,000 when the Glasgow Air Force Base was here. There's a lot of military history here, and you've even yes. got aircraft on display here. That yes. was probably yes. based at the Air Force Base at one point. Talk to us about about the Air Force Base and how it's no longer here. It was um, a huge installation with B-52s and a training uh, program with the type of plane that's in the front yard, the a T-33s mm -hmm. and um, a lot of people uh, it was a great boom to our area because uh, you know we got a, a four lane highway and we got uh, many new businesses and so many interesting people came with the Air Force uh, that became friends of everybody sure. then in uh, I think it was around 1970 or so, the government decided that they didn't need that air base anymore, and it started to phase down. There had been a number of different programs that have gone up there, um, such as the Family Training Center, which was a schooling for families, and other things that, you know, filled in, but now there really isn't too much up there except a small community of retirees they could buy the, the housing. And so it, that was, you know, kind of a boom-to-bust yeah. situation. Uh, another um, military installation that not too much is thought about anymore today, but it was an Army air base back at the sort of the end of the war, and it was up a little further than the existing airport at this point, um, they did training of pilots, and they had prisoners up there. Um, as a kid, I can remember we were just a block from that street. They would 
bring the prisoners down the street and take them to the railroad station so they could go out in the beet fields and work on the sugar beets. But you could hear them coming because they would be singing and marching in sequence. (laughs) So it was quite a memory. Uh, But And then we've had uh, local people who did a lot of training of pilots back in World War II here. Part of the area's quirky history involves some ghostly stories about the Fort Peck Hotel and the Fort Peck Summer Theater. Barbara asked us if we ran into her friends during our overnight stay there. Like my ghost? <laughs> yes, yes, we, we heard about these ghosts last night. You did? We stayed at the Fort Peck Hotel. Yes. Oh! The third floor is haunted. Yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> And there's supposedly a ghost in the theater. Somebody that uh-huh. has, was trying to change lights at one point and fell down or Ooh. something. And, and it's in one of these books on Haunted I Montana. I maybe it was a bad actor. <laughs> <laughs> and the people in Fort Peck said, Just you got to go, you know. You know, the show will not go on. <laughs> oh, dear. Uh-huh. Well, Barb, thank you so much. Part of the attraction of Montana are the seemingly endless opportunities for families to bond on dinosaur treks and museum visits. As Russell Country's Gail Fisher notes, oh, if, if, you, if you travel with children, as soon as you hit the border coming out of North Dakota, there's just, there are so many opportunities, uh, incredible museums, incredible outdoor spaces, and more and more you'll find people who are, are forming it's more the um, outfitters right now, the outfitters that bring in the hunters, and they come to the battlefield and go to these sites. But uh, there's a man in Malta right now that's, that's got the, the business, and he'll take you out, and you go right to the source. So uh, I've been able to take my child out and collect um, these non, you know, the, the fossils without the backbones, uh, five or six times since we've lived here. So there, there's actual sites throughout the state and this this region where uh, excavate. Yes, well, it, you can visit the that area there at uh, Zortman. That it's just an exposed, eroding hill, and there are thousands and thousands of those little squid body um, fossils that are there. So the kids, they're very distinctive, and the kids can keep those. So. It's and well, my kids have gone to baseball games and looked down and found trilobites in the gravel at the baseball games. So, but then of course the museums feature such incredible dinosaurs through this stretch of Montana. Malta, the museums are wonderful, wonderful. Up next on our Montana journey, we visit the town of Malta and we go in search of dinosaurs who once roamed this land. He is a long-necked sauropod. This is what they think that he would have looked like. And they think that he might be a brand new species because he shares characteristics with other types of long-necked dinosaurs, but he's not one or the other, so to speak. So he's really interesting, and we are conducting research on him now, and we're really excited for what we might find here in the future. And we'll learn about the Native American and homesteaders of this area as we visit the Phillips County Museum, next on World Footprints Radio. Hi, I'm Carla Huntsley with Missouri River Country, and I live in Fort Peck, Montana. And I'd like to have you all come out and see what a beautiful state we have in the northeast corner of Montana. It's just a wonderful place. And listen to World Footprints Radio.
World Footprints Radio is an award-winning broadcast and leader in socially conscious travel. Hosts Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick bring you entertaining and informative interviews with well-known celebrities, newsmakers, authors and industry professionals. From environmental leaders like Bobby Kennedy Jr. and David Rockefeller Jr. to conservationists like actress Stephanie Powers and director Ken Burns. Tune in to hear travel journalism at its best. Visit unique places from around the world and stop by the worldfootprints.com website for comprehensive travel information including special daily travel deals. I'm Courtney Moles. I am with Philco Economic Growth Council in Malta, Montana. I am a transplant from New Orleans and Montana is a beautiful state. Uh, listen to World Footprints Radio. You're listening to World Footprints Radio, awarded as the best travel audio podcast by the North American Travel Journalists Association. Here's Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick. Welcome back. I'm Ian Fitzpatrick. As we wrap up our Montana journey in Missouri River country, we leave Glasgow headed west along the Milk River to our final stop, Malta, where the dinosaurs once roamed. The train is a great way to make your way from town to town as you travel across Montana, as we did on our journey. The Great Plains Dinosaur Museum and Field Station in Malta is a great place for families to go in search of dinosaurs and perhaps dig your own, as we learn from the museum's Courtney Moles. So when this building was built in 2008, we got an entire museum as well as a prep lab. The Judith River Foundation is the private nonprofit that supports the museum, and we all work really, really hard, the entire board, in order to keep this place up and going and to support the museum and to put in our fundraiser. Our big deal is the Montana Dinosaur Festival, which we have every year, and it is the same weekend as the car show and the first drag race out of the drag strip, and that's always when we have our fundraiser, and also we have a dino day which is normally a day for kids where they come and they get to do different crafts and activities and so on and so forth. So that's always a big, a big weekend for us. Thanks to research here in Malta, we know much about the layers of the earth containing dinosaur fossils, as Courtney tells us. This map right here is kind of our first process whenever we're hunting for dinosaurs. Each color that you see is a different formation, which is basically a different layer of the earth mm -hmm. and we know that on certain formations we find dinosaurs and in other ones we don't find any dinosaurs so whenever we get a phone call from a private landowner that's just like we think we have a dinosaur here and we know that they're in a formation that has dinosaurs then we like well maybe you do mm -hmm. more often than not it's not a formation that normally has dinosaurs and we have to tell them you know you probably you just have a rock that kind of looks mm -hmm. like a dinosaur mm -hmm. and then they get disappointed but for the most part, we're able to look at this map and be able to tell, you know, whether or not we might find fossils. So this color right here that you see, this is the Judith River Formation, which our private nonprofit is named after. And this is where we're going to be headed up tomorrow. This is the area that we're going to be going to and the fossils that we're going to be seeing. And the Judith River Formation right up around this area is really, really special because during this time period, a coastline would have been right up along here mm -hmm. and they think that that area would have had really terrible hurricanes that would come through mm -hmm. and just take out a bunch of animals all at once really quickly cover them over mm -hmm. so because of that we get entire dinosaurs mm -hmm. that are found and that's not very typical 
Normally when we find fossils, they look like these guys that we have right over here. They're really, really crunched up and we have to work really hard to put them all back together in all the little pieces. And we also don't find the entire animal. Like we can see Ralph here, our long neck dinosaur. We've got his neck, we have ribs, and we have a few leg bones. And that's all that we actually recovered of him. So we didn't find the entire animal. And that's pretty typical. So these dinosaurs that are found north of here are really special because they're articulated mm -hmm. and they're put together. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The museum contains fossils of a rare long neck sauropod and a prized stegosaurus named Giffen. Now this guy right here, he is a long neck sauropod. This is what they think that he would have looked like. And they think that he might be a brand new species because he shares characteristics with other types of long neck dinosaurs, but he's not one or the other, so yeah. to speak. So he's really interesting and we are conducting research on him now and we're really excited for what we might find here in the future. And right here, you can see on his leg bone where he's got some teeth marks right there. So we know that something was probably chewing on him. And that's another part of the reason why we think that we don't find entire animals because, you know, after the animals would die, then the scavenging meat eaters would come along. Now this dinosaur here, this is Giffen, and Giffen is a stegosaurus. He's one of Montana's only stegosaurs that's ever been found. And he's also the northernmost that's ever been found in the world. And like you can see here, we didn't find all of them. We've got a dermal plate right here, and then we have his skull, and we have some other pieces of him. Now Giffen is the, the lady that makes the lotion. The dinosaur was found on her property. Mm -hmm. And the family, when they were, they were building a retaining wall next to their barn, and they found what they thought was just a really cool rock. Mm -hmm. And it was actually part of his lower leg bone. It was this bone right here. And they didn't know it was a dinosaur bone, so they used it as a doorstop for their laundry room for years. Mm -hmm. oh, of all things. Until they finally started to find more of this stuff. Oh my goodness. And realized that they actually had a dinosaur. This is heavy. No wonder they thought it was a rock. I know, it is heavy. And these are heavy like that. And you'll notice that this is, this one's heavy and the ones that we'll see over here are gonna be really light and also light in color compared to these that are dark. And that's just because whatever they're buried in, mm -hmm. that's what eventually replaces yeah, their bones. They become, yeah. So these guys are buried in carbon and manganese, so they're dark and they're heavy. Mm -hmm. And those guys were buried in sand. So, mm -hmm. One of the most surprising facts of Montana is that it was once covered by the sea. And as a result, fossils of squid, sea turtles, stingray, and lobsters have been discovered in Montana. And these are the fossils that would have been in the seaway that would have been here during this time period with that coastline just north of here. And these are giant squids. And we've got some bite marks on him right here. Let's see. And then we've got a turtle right over here. You can see that they haven't really changed a whole lot in the many years that they've been around. And this guy here is another squid except he is long and straight instead of coiled up, like this ammonite. So that's the main difference between the two of them. Mm. And these lines that we see right here, 
it shows their growth. So they add chambers as they get bigger. Mm-hmm. And the lines themselves actually show you what species it is because they have different patterns depending on what type you're looking at. Right here we have our fossil fish. And these are, again, would have been found in the seaway the same time as these other prehistoric squids. And right over here we have a megalodon tooth, which is a big prehistoric shark, much bigger than anything that we have today. And then we've got some stingray teeth right there next to him. And then these are just some little skulls right over here and backbone, some scales right up here. And these are found all over Montana. These invertebrates are really, really common, as are the fish. And you can find them all over the state, particularly in the eastern part of the state. And then these are lobsters. And then we've got some crabs here on the top. Some more of these long, straight squids. And these right here, we call these ditties. And they're also squids, but they're kind of different because they would move by bouncing up and down in the water, kind of like a spoon. The thing that makes Montana a must for families is the opportunity to dig for dinosaurs, just as one local four-year-old girl did and made a remarkable discovery in the process, as Courtney tells us. Now this is some of the most recent material that we've brought in from the field just over the past couple of summers. Um, We're working on this ceratopsian. This is a triceratops brow horn right here, and it was found by a four-year-old girl who was hunting fossils with us out on her ranch. And it's a lot of fun. These kids, they live on these ranches, and that's what they get to do with their spare time. It would be awesome to just Mm -hmm. be like, well, we're bored. Let's go hunt some dinosaur fossils. (laughs) And they get to do that on a regular basis. And the horn was found poking out of the side of a the side of, we call them coolies out here, which is basically just a, just kind of a little hill. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so cute! <laughs> <laughs> she has a legacy at four. Right? Yes, she does. <laughs> dinosaur hunter. <laughs> Next door to the Great Plains Dinosaur Museum and Field Station is the Phillips County Museum, which is rich in Native American and homesteading history, as we learn from the museum's Connie Jones. Um, I guess with our moccasins, a lot of people, you know, they, I don't think they realized that until the Europeans came and started trading beads, you know, and the Indians for the beads and stuff, they used the porcupine quills, which was, we only have like one set of moccasins that's with porcupine quills. The rest of them are with beads. But it was so hard to do the porcupine quills that I'm sure they were relieved to get the beads. Mm. And um, we have a pretty good Iroquois uh, selection, which is from back east, which as you can tell from the style. It's Victorian type. So, which I was always amazed, that Victorian type beadwork, you know. But it makes sense if it's Iroquois from back east that they would have that influence. But... So we have our little moccasins and, and gloves and, and the uh, wedding vessel, which is a story in itself. We have some beautiful pottery. It dates back quite a ways. And I wish I knew a little more about the pottery than I do, but, um, which is another thing I didn't realize, that when they were on the move, they did need things to carry stuff in. 
so they would make their little pouches and purses and I thought yeah I guess it makes sense you know <laughs> who would have thought they would have to put stuff in in something so these little they had the little beaded what I call purses but <laughs> pouches and uh, actually we had a Native American come in and say that was his grandfather's headdress from mm-hmm. Fort Peck so that was kind of neat <laughs> I didn't. Even, we didn't even know that it was on display. That it was these granddads, but so they just came to see it. The whole family, and uh, but I had helped the gal redo this whole area, so I learned a lot by doing the research on how things were done and how they dyed the their um, leather and tans and all that, and um, so. I learned a lot doing this. And we had redone a lot of our photos and stuff. And I think one of the areas that the museum may have been a little weak in was information. So now we've overwhelmed them (laughs) with all kinds of information about everything, you know. So if a person wants to read about it, they can. Or if they just want to flip through and go through quick, they can at least get a little bit of information. But... um, It was it was interesting about the the homesteader. I, I guess the homesteading's what really interests me. Is um, it was pretty tough, and a lot of them made a living off uh, cattle and wild horses, which is what they were doing here, um, bringing in wild horses and breaking them, and then they'd ship them out by train to the military, you know, and sell them to the military for use but well, we'll just keep going on here and of course our buffalo and bison exhibit here um, um, but we've got some and that story in itself is kind of heartbreaking I'm an animal lover so, 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 so I know and it's hard for me to think the government um, our government at that time didn't stop that slaughter of the bison like they did because they wanted the, the Native Americans defeated. And, it, and that was one good way to defeat them is take away, kill all the buffalo, which they did. And it certainly contributed to our winning the war over the Native Americans. But it, it just kind of makes me sad when I think about that, you know. All those animals. Yeah, that they killed all of them just... And it just left them to rot. (laughs) It just, it bothers me. But they did, and it bothers me more that the government okayed it, you know, just so that they could take their land. So The museum's history recounts some painful chapters in Native American history in the region. Um, Another interesting thing about the Native Americans when all this, the Europeans were coming and stuff, is they brought diseases with them that the Native Americans had, you know, no way of being able to fight it off or anything. So a lot of them died from chicken pox and things that they brought. And this um, group of girls there actually were forced to play basketball, <laughs> is what it amounts to. They were taken from their families and, and um, made to play basketball. And they were, I guess, a wonderful team. They were a championship team. But it's a sad story because they didn't. 
I don't think they wanted to do that. Shoot the story of the 1904 Fort Shaw Indian Girls Basketball yeah. First World Champions. Yeah, they were wonderful basketball players. Mm. But, you know, they had to take American names and all this other stuff that they were forced to do that... That wasn't right, but um, and then this talks about the diseases and how many tribes were were killed from the chicken pox and and different diseases that white men brought. <laughs> and um, I believe uh, and the Indian tribes we have here. Um, and I don't know if you guys will go by East Fort Peck, but or not Fort Peck, Fort Belknap, mm -hmm. or Assiniboine and Gravant uh, tribes. Wonderful people, Grovants and Assiniboine are very nice people. From the Cowboys, Ranchers, and Outlaws, the museum has an eclectic mix of people and stories to share. And one of the most touching human interest stories is that of Balto the dog and the sick boy he transported to the doctors. And this was a story about a little boy that was um, very, very sick, and the dog took him into the, the 16 miles into a doctor on a sled, so we featured that and got the dog and it was a neat story 1918 Aww. but yeah the dog hauled him all the way in on that sled <laughs> that's pretty good they have we have our own balto was it balto so the yeah. dog knew where to go the huh? dog yeah you know i mean he just took him in and <laughs> i imagine they'd gone in a few times i have no idea how that you're a smart dog, aren't you? <laughs> that just shows how they took hay and the loose hay and flipped it up into the stacks. Mm -hmm. And um, here we've got our shows, just photos of the Roundup and brandings and cowboy way of life, you know. That is the biggest thing on the ranching is the cattle, and the, especially in this area. <laughs> Everybody's a rancher. We're a hobby farmers. So we're not ranchers. Otherwise, the ones that did have a profession made it, you know, and, and proved up on their land. But the ones that didn't, it was too hard. It was tough. Well, they didn't have to live on their homesteads year-round. They had to be on them, I think it was like six or seven months out of the year. But here in Montana, they could leave for the winter because it was so severe. They knew they couldn't survive, but... Um, families that didn't have other income are the ones that suffered, you know. Not that long ago, the homesteaders here and they were settling the land. It hasn't been that long, really. I think, in fact, this area, I think most of them started in 1914 that started coming in. And, you know, you look at the homestead plats and stuff like that, I'm shocked when I look at it and see every 160 acres, there was there were a home site. We hope you enjoyed our Montana journey today, and our good friends there look forward to seeing you soon, and we look forward to returning in the very near future. As always, we look forward to you joining us and connecting with us during the week on our social networks. And you can find links to our social networks and sign up for our newsletter and travel deal alerts at worldfootprints.com. We're Tanya and Ian Fitzpatrick, and we'll see you again next week. And until then, we wish you blue skies and purposeful travel that leaves positive footprints one step at a time. Hi, guys. My name is Sandy Best, the Sandy Best from Lake Louise. Where's Lake Louise? It's in Alberta. Alberta's in Canada, Banff National Park. Natural beauty. The only place you should go with is World Footprints.
Radio because they spend their time looking at those special places that are not tourist traps, that are not thousands of people. For the best on the planet, go with World Footprints Radio. World Footprints Radio is a presentation of Travel and On Media Productions, LLC. All rights reserved.